Hi, I'm Millie Thomas, an eating disorder recovery coach. We've created this podcast to raise awareness about all types of eating disorders and help dispel some of the many myths and stigma that unfortunately still surround them. I would have given up my entire bank savings. I would have given up my job. I would have given up all my friends just to be thin. It feels like it's like a drug. You know it's bad because you know like this is hurting me, but it somehow makes you feel like you're doing something right. I thought that thinness was going to change my life. I thought it was going to make me happy. I thought most of all, and this was very important, I thought it was going to get me love. This is the End Eating Disorders podcast. Why can't I get joy from anything? Frequent thing they heard, the nursing staff heard, was it was it was when they whispered in the, the ear of the patient when they were really doing it tough. I reckon you can do this, you know, I believe you're going to get there. The eating disorder cannot be more powerful than you are because you give it its power. It's a part of you. It took half of my life, my eating disorder, and it literally nearly took my life. But we, we've seen recovery in, in kids, in teenagers, in adults, and in the elderly. So there's absolutely uh, hope. There is hope at endend.org.au. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, I have the amazing Zoe McBride with me. Zoe is a Nelson-born former world champion rower, representing New Zealand on the world stage for nine years. She's a current psychology student at the University of Canterbury, interested in well-being, personal development, and performance. She has a passion for movement, connection, and development. Zoe is working towards helping young people and young athletes build the resilience and personal skills they need to navigate both life and sporting endeavours, along with helping young girls and women build healthy, long-lasting relationships with their bodies. Thank you so much for joining me today, Zoe. I'm honoured. Great to be here. I (laughs) would like to begin with you giving our listeners a little bit of an insight into your eating disorder journey. So... My eating disorder journey started through my sport. Um, As my my time as a professional athlete, I was a lightweight rower. And so that meant for competition um, in order to race, I had to be a certain weight. And like many people, you know, as I was younger, like I I naturally sat at that weight. And the older I got, as I got into my 20s and mid-20s, that weight got harder and harder to achieve for me. And so it became, each year, I guess, I introduced, um, I guess, more over-exercising, less eating, um, and other methods, I guess, of losing weight in order to get at this, um, I guess, my ideal weight, which was my racing weight. Um, and, yeah, I guess for me, it was hard to notice at the start. Well, it was hard to notice for a while because it was just, easy to put down to it was part of my sport um my sport required me to be this weight and so I didn't see it as an eating disorder for many years how did that feel for you being stuck um in those years um you know someone who hasn't experienced an eating disorder how would you how does it feel it's really suffocating um I think that as time goes on the things that are really important to you become less important to you in some ways and they become less of a part of your life because the focus on food, the focus on what you look like in the mirror, the focus on the scales becomes more and more and because that's growing it pushes those other things out of your life 
um, I guess obviously it pushes like the enjoyment of food and it pushes away friendships, um, family, because I think the more, the further you get down as well, you're scared of people close to you, I guess finding out what's going on. Um, and there's that, there's that, I guess that edge of wanting to get better, but then also being scared of what that means. Uh, so it's a lot of fear. There's a lot of anxiety and it's, yeah, it's pretty lonely. It's such a lonely experience, isn't it? Because it's unless you've been mm. there, it's the weirdest thing to try and describe to anyone. Um, and yeah, often people exactly. just drift away because, like, we just really don't get what's happening with with you. Yeah, exactly. And it's not a black and white, like, just eat more. Um, I guess that's a phrase that, yeah, people that haven't experienced that, it's easy for them to give advice on just eating more, but there's so much more to it than just the food. Um, so, yeah, it does become isolating. Oh, definitely. I think, you know, that's one of the things people really don't understand is that it infiltrates every single aspect of your life. So, yes, yeah. often um, learning how to eat again is a key part of recovery. Um, but there yeah. is so many other things as well that need to be incorporated into into recovery in order to make sure that you're fully recovered and able to yeah. move on with your life without any sort of lasting yeah. little parts of the eating disorder creeping their way mm-hmm. in or popping their heads out every so often. Yeah, 100%. Were there moments there when, you know, you said that it's suffocating, you felt quite trapped. Are there moments where you felt hopeless? Yeah, I I think the problem was it was not only the eating disorder and the focus on my body, but it was the fact that with my sport, there was a lot of my worth and my value tied into that as well. And so I, I had a lot tied into my weight and um, I guess I put a lot of my value on that and the times that it did get really, really hard, the thought of not rowing or not making that weight class um, made me feel like I had nothing. I guess rowing was like a really big part of my identity at that point and I hadn't learned how to separate that from who I was as a person and so it felt like there was a lot and I guess how I thought people's opinions of me and people's love for me and um, friendships with me were tied on this weight because I guess all yeah all, all those areas of my life um, merged into that one that one weight and revolved around that and yeah it can feel sometimes it feels like that's just going to be it and that's just who you are and I guess my personality Features of my personality changed a lot as well from the the not eating and the not fueling your body to be able to function properly. And I remember getting to a point where I thought that was just who I was and I thought I was a really lonely, sad, introverted person um, and that's just how I was going to be and that there was not really any way that I could change that. What, what made you keep the hope alive? I guess it was... A big one for me was thinking about, like, do I want to have a family in the future? And if I did want to have a family in the future, like, how would I want to be for that daughter if I had a daughter? I guess it was, I had to stop thinking about myself and I had to think about a potential future or I had to think about, um, I guess, especially like in the sporting world, like I was a role model for people as well. And it was kind of getting outside of just myself and thinking about, who I needed to be for other people. 
um, and how I wanted them to live their lives and how I guess I wanted to be able to show them how to live a healthier life. Because it is such an insular thing, isn't it? We go so deep into mm. ourselves and mm. it's that real tunnel vision, black and white, whereas we just need to actually open our eyes and realise, oh, that's right, this is actually affecting other people and it will continue to do so unless I start yeah. to make decisions that are actually aligned with my values and what I truly want my life to, to look like. Yes, absolutely. And I think when we think from that, I guess, like, centred on us point of view, like, we don't realise that people see so much more of us than just our weight. Like, I think when you are in that place and when you are struggling, like, you think your value and why people like you and that is because of your size as well. Like, it gets really distorted, the vision that you have of yourself and that, I don't know, for me, I thought it was, like, my main personality trait, which has nothing to do with my personality. But, yeah, you get so distorted in the image of yourself. Talk to me about just how problematic the focus on weight and rowing is. Yeah, there was, um, there's a, obviously as females, there's a whole lot of problems that come with um, low weight, I guess, you know, like periods um, are the main kind of feature, but then yeah, like your cognitive and then your health in general just deteriorates, bone density, um, and people, yeah, it gets really, really dangerous. And I think the problem in sport where you have these weight class sports is that it's really easy to pull the wool over people's eyes um, and justify it as being healthy. For so many years, I um, there were times where I would bring up problems and kind of concerns that I had, and people would you know, just tell me it's part of the sport and, you know, you've done it before, you can do it again. It's, it's what everyone does and it was just these, these like messages being given to me without actually recognising the dangers of getting your body weight really, really low and I just have to go to weigh-in rooms around like different regattas and you see these girls that are gaunt, they're skinny, they've been starving themselves, dehydrating themselves to get to weight and it's so scary because we justify it as being part of the sport. And it's it's just an eating disorder. It's just a mask for an eating disorder. And I think because it's just not flagged by sporting bodies. And I think for me, um, you know, coming back with low body weight scores and um, scans and things like that, it was just justified as it was part of my job in some ways. And so... I guess if that was me to go to anyone else as a normal person in a normal clinic, that would be red flagged. But in sport, it just wasn't. You talk about one of the hardest things being that throughout your entire career, although you ate less and less, you were still able to perform to an extremely high level. In 2019, Mm. you won at the World Champs and qualified for the Olympics, despite being in the lowest place. It must have been incredibly difficult to continue to train and put your game face on while internally mm-hmm. you were battling this insidious beast 24-7. Yeah, I look back on it now and I don't know how I did it. I think it was just the exercise became part of the obsession and for me, rowing felt like the one thing that I could just get away from it for those certain points 
I guess when I was on the water, I didn't have to think about the thoughts in my head about food because rowing and pushing myself was just the one thing that could kind of overrun that. But to this day, I don't actually know how I still performed. I would love to know how I could have performed if I had been eating optimally and um, looking after myself. But I think part of the reason that I was a lightweight and I did well is I was pretty strong-willed and determined. And I guess that's what made me push my body so hard is because I was determined, but then I was able to, yeah, I don't know, get, get everything out of it. Um, I actually don't, I don't know how I perform to be honest. Um, I've seen many people that have been in positions where like I was and they don't, they aren't able to match performance. Um, so yeah, I don't know how long it would have lasted though. Like I was constantly, injured and constantly coming up with injuries especially after 2019 I, I couldn't stay in a boat for long because it was bone density um, was decreasing and so I was getting stress fractures and things like that so I think I potentially had reached the peak of performance and after that I probably would have consistently um, gone downhill from the years that I had um, been struggling with this eating disorder but yeah perhaps at that point it just I was still on that fine line. Did your coaches know? Did you have support around you? I talked to my coach. Like We had support, but I guess in the high performance system like that as well, you, I guess it's like you don't want them to know that you're struggling because it's, it's such a competitive environment. And if you, it's, it's a bit of an old school mindset, but it's definitely still there a little bit. Like if you are weaker or if you're showing these signs of weakness, then someone else is there to take your place. Um, I was in a position where I was in this boat and I did have a few conversations with my coach, but because we were performing well, I think it was, it was like we talked about before. It was just not acknowledged the same. It was kind of slipped under the rug and, um, I was kind of told that we can deal with that in a year's time um, and that, you know, right now it's not going to have any long-term consequences. Um, we yeah, can deal it was, with it in a year's time. Seriously? Yeah, like that was that was kind of the gist of conversations that I had. Like I remember, yeah, having these conversations, like actually concerned about what was happening to my body and concerned about the long-term health and I guess being sporting performance as well. Like, they want boats to do well and boats to get medals. And so, um, yeah, it was kind of that timeline. And then after that, I could recover and heal my body. Oh, gosh, that makes me so angry. <laughs> so, yeah. It's so yeah. wrong. It's so Especially when it comes wrong. from males as well. And I think, like, they – and when it comes from people that don't have experience in it either, like, they have no idea what they're going through. And to, when you've got young girls listening to these things, it's just – it's a really damaging conversation to have um, when a lot of people in this position, they need someone to actually stand up for them and say, hey, like we need to help you. Um, and I guess like those circles in a high-performance environment, like that's your close circle, that's the people that you hope are going to be there to help you when you need it, um, not just on the water but also off the water. Yes, completely. And I think, I mean, we know it's so hard to come forward and to ask for help, mm. it takes an incredible yep. amount of courage and vulnerability. And then to get response like mm. that, it's just, it's, yeah, it breaks my heart to hear that, that, 
that was your yeah. experience and things definitely yeah. need to change in that respect because otherwise we're just going to have generations <laughs> of individuals yeah. experiencing that same that same thing and then the, the ramifications of that are just huge exactly and like when you're young you don't realize those ramifications as well like you when you're not experiencing the, the time like there's so many long-term effects and yeah like if you're brave enough to put your hand up and say hey something's not right you need that full support rather than waiting a little bit longer or waiting for something else to happen um it's never too early to yeah intervene and get that help when you need it oh absolutely it's essential Mm. so so essential Mm. Uh, we, we know with eating disorders that the longer they have to percolate inside, the more rigid, the harder it, you know, the more ingrained it becomes and the harder it is to, to yeah. actually claw your way out of it. Absolutely, yeah. What impact did the Olympics being postponed due to COVID have on you? That was a big turning point for, I wouldn't say for like my recovery from my eating disorder, but... I guess it started to make me think, am I actually going to get there? Um, Leading into the Olympics, like I was, what, 2020, I was aware that I wasn't healthy, but I didn't, I hadn't chosen to do anything about it. Um, I was kind of told myself that I'd get through this and I'd deal with it after. Um, But the fact that it was postponed and then doing the calculations another 16 months, it scared me to think, what 16 months time would look like for me um and that year I I did get some pretty severe injuries I got like a stress fracture in my femur um which took five months to heal and I yeah I remember being um I yeah I was in a place and that a good place at that time I was like binging and and purging and things as well like a, a lot of really unhealthy coping behaviours I guess I thought they were coping behaviours kind of crept in Um, and it took yeah a bit of a conversation with my dad which at the time I hated um, to make me realise that if I was I couldn't keep doing things the way that I was going um, and that I wasn't going to do anyone any favours by continuing to do the things that I was doing um, for the Olympics let alone just the general life um so it was a pretty big wake up call for me and I guess that year of 2020 became the year that I had to make a decision on what I was going to do with my body. Now fast forward to the lead up to the Olympics in 2021 Mm -hmm. talk to me about the pressure placed on you from selectors to lose weight and how this led to you making the decision to retire. Yeah so 2020 went and gone I healed, managed to put on some weight for like intentional weight to heal um, and had decided that I was just, I was in a position where I thought that I could keep going and make it to the Olympics. Um, Come March, I think, end of February, I yeah got told by the selectors that I needed to be at 57 kgs in May for like a trial or just an in-house regatta. So each year we would have three I guess squad regattas, so just throwing New Zealand crews to race with handicaps um, on time 
and it's just in preparation to go overseas. And at this point, I was selected in the double because there was just the two of us lightweight, which says something in itself that a lot like people weren't lasting in the sport. Um, there was no lightweights around because yeah, like that was a lot of it was people just needed to take the break and they couldn't continue going. But I was told yeah, within two, maybe it was two months, I get needed to get kgs. So for me, that was about two and a half months out from the Olympics. Was it just started spiraling me back into those really, really unhealthy thoughts, those really, really unhealthy behaviours. It was almost instantly. Um, I remember leaving the building and I was like, okay, what am I going to cut out of my diet today? Maybe I'll add some extra exercise in. Maybe I'll go to the sauna. Um, it was just, yeah, I felt like that little dormant part of me. Not dormant, but she'd just been quiet. And I feel like it just came full back into overdrive. And I don't think until that moment I had realised how far I had come either. Um, in terms of like starting to recover, I at that moment when all those thoughts started to come in, I realised that they hadn't been there for a long time, um, and I started jumping back on the scales like obsessively, and it made me realise that it just rowing wasn't worth it to me anymore. I guess when it came to my weight, like it wasn't, I was too scared to go back down that path, um, and even just those couple of days scared me how quickly I could start changing things again and start excessively exercising and start cutting food out and I realized that the long-term health was just more important to me at that point than um, losing weight for some old men that needed me to be for the regatta that didn't matter. I love that statement. It's a very strong statement. It's very, Mm. very true. (laughs) Yeah. Do you believe that athletes are more susceptible to developing eating disorders and body image issues? I think there's a stereotype. Um, it's it's starting to change, but there's a stereotype on what an athlete should look like. You know, there's that there's that ripped figure, there's the abs, there's the low fat, the low percentage of body fat, and then like a lot of the uniforms that people wear are skin tight as well. They're in the public eye. There's so much criticism on them, and I feel like, especially as females, like there feels a lot of pressure to look good in those photos. And even a friend I had um, years ago, she got a photo taken of her by a photographer, and he put it up online, and she absolutely hated it. And she asked him to take it down, and he he took a long time to take it down, but just there was lack of consideration of if someone would actually want that photo up um, because of maybe the angle or the way that it looked, and I think there's a big difference between like aesthetic athlete and then an athlete that actually can perform. And that is an athlete that is stronger, has a little bit more um, like just weight on them so that they can get through training, so that they can recover and things like that. But we've got this really bad perception along with the media and um, yeah, even what people wear. And I think it's just a really bad combination for someone that's potentially already inclined to be a little bit um, sensitive to the way that they look. Yes. And I think it's that just that focus on it. Yeah. And, and as you say, all Absolutely. those images that you see portrayed in the media. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
I have a, a friend in LA, and um, for many years he was—he's a model, but he's also an actor. And and he said to me recently when I was over there at Christmas time, he said, you know, he was always on the cover of Men's Health magazine. He said, when whenever I was mm. on the cover, that was when I was at my worst. I was binging and purging. Yeah. I was, you know, doing all sorts of the, um, you know, the sports enhancing drugs. And he said, mm-hmm. and yet there I was being praised for being on the cover of Men's Health, and everyone going, oh look yeah. how amazing he looks little did they know that yeah. I was in my own private hell exactly and that's a issue that I found I guess when I was at my lowest weight racing like I was in my worst mental state as well but the praise I got was for performance and for doing well and for you know um like for those forgetters and so whether it's like reinforcement from other people or it's from yeah like the events and success it, it's that reinforcement of that's your worth and your value is at this and this is when everyone kind of yeah praises you and so it becomes a really toxic cycle of chasing that and giving up yeah your happiness and giving up who you are and for that external praise did you find yourself comparing yourself to other athletes when you were competing always i feel Never actually talked about this, but I used to find myself like looking on other lightweight athletes' pages and seeing what they looked like, especially in like off seasons when people would not be as race fit. Um, a few, like for me, I had to diet down and I had to, yeah, really struggle to get down. So on the off season, sometimes I'd be a little bit heavier, but I would constantly look to see if other people had put on weight and if they had, then I really felt validated. Um, it was really toxic. I constantly compared myself to other people, whether it was in person and I saw them or if it was online. Um, yeah, it, it didn't make it didn't make me a nice person. Some parts of it, it was constantly, yeah, just judging other weights based off my own weight in some ways. Because it is, it becomes your whole world. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That, that, that absolute laser sharp focus on this is what matters, and so therefore, no matter where yeah. you are and what you're looking at, it's it's always there. It's always, it's always there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's just directing every thought. Um, yeah, and then I guess depending on what you saw, you felt validated in what you're doing. I was like, oh, maybe I should just lose a little bit more weight to look like them. It's, it's never finding that validation within yourself. Was it hard to cultivate a healthy relationship with exercise after years of pushing yourself to the absolute li- limit, even when you had injuries? Yeah, it's a work in progress still. Um, I found at the start it was I didn't exercise for the right reasons. Um, but... I've had months where I haven't really been able to exercise with fitness and things, and I think that really, that really helped me to build back a relationship of enjoying exercise just to exercising, like just being able to appreciate moving my body because when you can't, um, you really feel that impact on your life just in terms of getting outside and how it affects your mental health. Um, so I would say it's still a work in progress, but it's probably about 80% now. What about your body? Have you come to a place of acceptance with that? Yeah, I I think I still have up and down. Um, if I I feel like if I'm really really stressed, 
it'll trigger like a thought, but I don't dwell on it the same that I used, same as I used to. I think if those thoughts ever come up, came up in the past, I would really, really hold on to them and really, really dwell on them. And it's moments when I do have those times that I don't love my body. Um, I just acknowledge that that's also just part of being a human and my body is going to change due to different things and not feel great due to whatever time of the month it is or um, if I'm sick or if I'm stressed. And so I think it's just acknowledging that but not holding on to it. And that's really helped me get to a place of just accepting my body as it is rather than feeling like I need to love it. Like I, I think at the start I thought I needed to go from really hating it to loving it and being obsessed with it. Well, not like unhealthily obsessed with it, but I realized that for me at the moment, it's good to just accept it as it is and know that it's healthier and that I can move my body and I cannot get injured and I can eat the food that I want and just appreciate that. Yeah, it's 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 definitely a process, isn't it? Mm, <laughs> just it is. That gentle place of of complete radical acceptance um yeah and it can often you sort of think you're there and then it can often be a bit more of a roller coaster and reach sort of different yeah. levels of acceptance yeah exactly i think yeah it's it's not an easy journey and it's like most journeys it's not just a linear line um but i think having tools for when it does come up and that support system for when it does come up it really it changes everything completely rather than trying to do it alone. Yes, tools and strategies are mm. key. Now, what was the catalyst for you going public with your story? Um, it was kind of accident, to be honest. Um, my retirement was announced and because I had been like an influential part of the New Zealand rowing team and had success over the few over the years that I'd been there, um, yeah, I, I got interviews and things. And at that point, I didn't, when I retired, I didn't feel held back by the eating disorder anymore because I was able to step away from that environment. And as soon as I made the decision, as soon as I stepped away from Rowan New Zealand, I felt that hold, just, I, I felt that hold leave. And so I didn't feel ashamed and I didn't feel like I couldn't talk about it because there was no consequences of me talking about it. There was no boat that I couldn't get selected on because I'd already made that decision. And so I was happy to talk about it because I realized that I had held it in for so long. And I was thinking, like, if I've held it in, who else has held it in? And so, yeah, I was happy to start talking about it. I didn't realize that um, it would kind of get picked up as much as it did, but... I'm really proud of myself that I could and I think that was a big step for me in recovery as well is just acknowledging it and being able to talk about it rather than holding it in as a secret. Um, yeah. I'm really proud of you too and I know that it would have helped so many other people who, you know, maybe they weren't even aware that they were struggling to the extent that they were or they were aware but mm. they felt, you know, shame and stigma around it. Um, I think yeah. there's great power in standing up and, and telling our stories. And uh, when you do it in a public way as well, um, it takes such courage and vulnerability and people see that and they see that you're not ashamed of it and you're owning it. Yeah. Um, and that helps mm -hmm. you take away some of that shame and that stigma that unfortunately does still surround eating disorders. Yeah. 
Exactly. And I think that's the big thing with eating disorders and so many mental health is people don't talk about it. And so you feel like you're alone. And as soon as you hear someone talk about it or you're the one to start talking about it, people feel less alone. And I think if I had heard someone talking about it um, in the athlete realm years ago, that probably would have given me the push that I needed as well. And so I think that's all we can ask for really when we start to open up that conversation is that more people will be able to take their own power back. Did you worry in going public that it would affect, uh, you know, the, the rest of the, the rest of your life, your, your career, um, that sort of thing, as you you moved away from rowing? Were you worried that that would have an effect on things? To be honest, I never really thought about it, but I knew that I I'd known for a really long time that I wanted to move into something where I was helping other people, and mental health and well-being had always been um, a passion of mine. And so I thought, if anything, like it's going to be something to help me, I guess, be able to speak to the people that I want to speak to as well and have that um, lived experience in some ways where people can relate to me rather than just being someone that's talking about something but never had any experience in it. Like I would be able to have those people come to me because they knew that I could empathise and that I have been in that position as well. And so I think... Yeah, whilst it wasn't um, something that I thought about, I knew that I wanted to be in an area like that anyway, so I didn't consider it to, yeah, impact in any way, any negative way anyway. What do you believe needs to change in the sporting world to help mitigate the risk of athletes developing eating disorders? I think there's a lot um, that can be changed. I think, firstly, it needs to there needs to be more communication and open communication without consequences. I think a lot of people don't talk about things because they're afraid of being dropped or they're afraid of being gaslit or they're afraid that there's going to be consequences of them talking about their suffering. Um, there's a real um, like impression that athletes are really tough and they can push through anything. And yes, they're really tough, but yes, they're also humans. And, no matter how self-aware you are as an athlete, unless you've got that support system around you that's open and available for you to be able to talk, it's really, really hard to do that. And so I think it definitely comes from, definitely needs to come from the top giving athletes the ability to treat a mental injury as easily as they treat a physical injury. Um, I have sore ribs, I'm on the bike for a week, I get time off the water and I get to train less and it should be exactly the same for something that's going on in your head you know or something that you're struggling with um just be able to treat it exactly the same and approach it with as much um care and time as people need um and yeah I guess in terms of like the body and the eating like there just needs to constantly be education at a really young age I never never had education in high school when I was doing my sport about the importance of eating to fuel your sport um it was kind of something that I learned when I was 20s but by that time it was too late I was already stuck in my ways and there, there wasn't I wasn't open to changing anything um so I think it needs to be like really from a young age as well and like preventative 
um, creating that support and that education early. What is the most valuable thing that your eating disorder journey has taught you? It's taught me that in recovery how strong I am and that I I can do the things that I put my mind to and it's taught me how important my body is to me. I think I, I took it for granted for a really long time and I thought that there was no consequences for what I would do to it and now I've realised after the years of injury and losing my period and things like that, like how important my body is to me and how much I have to look after and honour it. And if I do that, then it will do the same for me. Um, yeah. In your opinion, what are the best ways people can support someone who is going through an eating disorder? It's absolutely that social support. It's, it's being there for them, letting them know that they can talk to you if they want to. It's, it's just being there in the quiet times, the good times and the bad times, I think knowing that someone's there for you. I even had like friends and my boyfriend and things, they just eat meals with me and that was so important to me because it made me feel like I wasn't alone in those really tough moments at the start when I had to increase my eating and things. It's just it's knowing that you're not by yourself and yes, you're fighting that internal battle but you've got so many people around you who believe in you and um, just being there for you in the smallest moments was the biggest help for me. Yeah, holding that time and that space and that hope mm. in a really non-judgmental, compassionate way is just so, so important. Absolutely, absolutely. And not, not wanting anything from themselves, not wanting you to talk to them. It's just acknowledging and being there for what you need in that moment. Um, yeah, it's really really important now finally are there any words of wisdom that you would like to share with our listeners today especially those who are still waking up each day to fight that brave fight against their eating disorder I would encourage them to just take the smallest steps to to write things down and to talk to someone if if they feel inclined to talk to someone, but just to keep hope that it does get better and it can get better and just take little steps every day towards whether it's talking to someone or seeking out help. Um, Do the things that you love. Make sure you make time for yourself to do one thing that you love a day to bring back that joy into your life and just remember that you're important and you're worthy and you deserve to be healthy and happy and love a beautiful life. Beautiful words of truth. Thank you so much for sharing your story with me uh, and with our listeners. I think it's a really, well, I know it's a really important one. I think there is so much that still needs to be done in that elite sporting world. And Mm. I know that you are fighting for change, which is amazing. And I am really excited to see what you do next in terms of using your lived experience to help others. Thank you so much. Yeah, I'm passionate about helping other people and moving in a position where I can and Yeah, I'm honoured to be on here. Thank you so much for having me and it's been a pleasure. This is the End Eating Disorders podcast. 
Your financial support will save lives. Donate at nded.org.au. I always used to think, like, how can people not hear what's going on in my head? You get to that point where you just, you just don't know what to do. There is hope at nded.org.au.